0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Francis Greenberger. He is perhaps best known for popularizing the idea of the cooperative as opposed to the condominium in uh, residential real estate development. This is a really fascinating conversation if you're at all interested in Um, real estate development, how projects move forward, uh, some of the challenges in dealing with the market cycle and credit availability, and pretty much anything related to what could throw plans off for for building a uh, a big building, uh, you're going to find this conversation to be absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Francis Greenberger. My special guest today is Francis Greenberger. He is a real estate developer, an author, a former literary agent, and a philanthropist. He is the founder of Time Equities, one of the larger real estate developers here in Manhattan and New York City. Perhaps he is best known as the creator of the residential co-op. His autobiography is Risk Game, Self-Portrait of an Entrepreneur. Francis Greenberger, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. So I'm kind of fascinated by your background and your history, and we're going to get into a lot of the details. But the obvious question, what sparked your interest in in real estate coming from a background working uh, in the book business?
2: It was pretty intuitive. I, uh, I, I remember to this day, I was walking down the streets, looking at buildings, looking at architecture thinking about built environments and thinking about real estate in New York and realized that I had some sort of a visceral connection with it mm-hmm. uh, that uh, defied my background or any particular, uh, particularly logical connection with my past.
1: So in your book, Risk Game, you wrote something that stayed with me. Quote, the real estate industry has created far more bankruptcies than billionaires, unquote. Explain that.
2: Well, I think uh, um, if if you look around New York, and I was walking here, I passed, uh, for instance, uh, Harry Macklow's gallery on Park Avenue. You know, Harry, who I know has had a has had a mixed career. He's had some incredible successes, mm-hmm. uh, but he's had some ex- incredible failures, all in New York City real estate. So uh, it's about timing. It's about risks. Uh, and it's about what you choose to do or not do.
1: So let's talk a little bit about timing and risks. You bought a piece of land down at 50 West Street back in the 1980s with the plan to either develop it or redevelop it in the future. And then that piece of property lived through September 11th and the great financial crisis. Tell us a little bit about your history with 50 West?
2: Okay actually when I bought it I wasn't thinking of redeveloping it I was thinking of it more as an income property and it was fully leased and mm-hmm. I think it made about a 10 percent return so it, it it looked like something I could just hold on to and over time watch rents go up and hopefully expenses keep stable and, and have growing income and growing value um, around uh, um, Uh, In the the 90s, we lost some tenants and uh, New York was just beginning to think about downtown as a mixed-use environment.
1: I mean, that was very non-residential back in the day, right? Very
2: non-residential, although Battery Park already existed. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, there was something called the Giuliani Plan, which offered tax benefits if you converted commercial properties to residential. So we were actually started to convert part of the building and was, I think, one of the first uh, um, properties to qualify under that plan. Um, by 19, by 2005, we had maybe converted half the building, but there was a lot of uh, major work that we needed to consider, and we realized that uh, the siting of the building was such that it if if a, hot, if a if it, if we demolished it and built a new building, there would be extraordinary views mm-hmm. available from the apartments. So we began to study that as an option.
1: And you spent a lot of money on architects just even thinking about this, right?
2: We spent, uh, you know, one of the surprises when you go into development is land is expensive. Well, <laughs> preparing <laughs> plans is very expensive. And we developed full plans for the building, which at that point was to be a hotel and uh, a condominium apartment complex. Um, but our plans got interrupted by the course of events uh, in the financial world.
1: So let's talk a little bit about that. Here's a building that you're racing to meet the deadline for certain tax advantages. You've already built the foundation. You've sunk a lot of the main support beams, but you haven't started building the building itself. And then September 15th, 08, Lehman Brothers collapses into bankruptcy. And I think you were talking about a $500 million financing for the whole project from start to finish. What did the collapse of Lehman Brothers do to that development?
2: Well, I recognized almost immediately that uh, building into that kind of financial environment would be disastrous. So I made the decision very quickly to pull the plug, halt development and wait for a better day.
1: In other words, not actually give up the property, but hey, let's postpone this project until credit frees up a bit.
2: Credit frees up and credit is only one part of the equation. If it's for sale housing the way this was, mm-hmm. condominiums, there had to be a willing market to buy it because otherwise you might have the financing, but you haven't wouldn't have no a bias. way to pay it back.
1: Right, Ma- makes sense. So, but that ran into a problem almost immediately, didn't it?
2: Yes, I, uh, <laughs> I had a little misunderstanding with with the bank who had financed the foundation construction for me. Uh, um, even though I had told them what I was doing and they seemed to concur, all of a sudden in January they sent me a letter saying I was in default because my loan required me to continue uh, uh, building no matter what. Mm-hmm. And of course, I called them and said, "Are you crazy?" <laughs> anyway, I don't really know what was going on. Within a couple of weeks, they backed off, mm-hmm. um, and we renegotiated the agreement to allow for uh, the interim period that would be needed until uh, the market was was suitable, and both from a financing po- point of view as well as a buying point of
1: view. And, and how did the building ultimately turn out?
2: Well, it turned out very, very well.
1: One of the things that I found so fascinating in your book, Risk Game, was how razor-thin the margins were for building properties and the constant search for cash and financing. Is that a fair description of commercial real estate in the 1970s or
2: generally? Well, I would say generally... And it also depends on the nature of what you're developing. So if you are in a generic kind of uh, marketplace with generic ideas, Mm -hmm. uh, not surprisingly, competition is fierce and the margins are highly compressed. When you say
1: generic marketplace,
2: what are you referring to? Well, for example, New York City. Mm-hmm. which for the last 10 or 15 years has been considered or one of the best investment markets in the world. So capital from everywhere, every corner of the world wants to be here. Mm-hmm. So there's fierce competition, and cap rates get compressed. However, at the same time, if you go to other regions of, of, of the United States or internationally, uh, you'll find a different picture market by market, sub-market by sub-market.
1: very, very interesting. One of the things I thought was fascinating heading into the financial crisis was a similar situation where a lot of global money was looking for returns. Much of it found its way to New York real estate development, and I heard a lot of real estate deal lawyers complain, gee, the ROIs, the return on investments on all these projects, seem to be getting more and more compressed. Uh, is that a fair description of what was, what you saw leading up to the 08 collapse?
2: Uh, very much so, although I have to say that it's not only leading up to the 2008 collapse, uh, um, it's prevalent in markets that are in great favor, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, really uh, uh, on a continuous basis. So um it's just that competitive. You know, if you go to Toronto today, which is one of the uh one one of the biggest development markets in North America and has been probably for 15 or 20 years, you'll find that uh um the profit margins on development are around 12%. That's probably half of what it would be even in New York.
1: Really? It's yes. that tight. It's that tight. So one of the things that was so surprising about the financial crisis, from a real estate perspective, I had, oh, I have always thought of developers as being somewhat countercyclical and somewhat opportunistic. After a crash, they love to go looking for um, high-quality buildings and high-quality plots for development that are, have fallen on hard times and are much less expensive than they normally would, would be. And there seems to be a tendency of them throttling back as the economy begins to overheat and interest rates rise. I don't know if we really saw a lot of that in that, oh, let's call it 01 to 08 cycle. Am, am I looking at it with a, that with a biased perspective? Or was that unusual versus prior cycles where developers seem to be savvier? They seem to be the smart money
2: well I, th- I, I I think that it's not all developers mm-hmm. or uh, I think it, I think the world divides itself and there is a tendency when the sun shines when money's available for many developers to move forward. There are other uh, um, developers and I can think of a couple in New York, for example, the Durst family mm-hmm. who were intergenerational, and used to thinking over long periods of time. And I remember that in po- post the, uh, the collapse of 2008, they started looking around and buying when nobody else was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, you also have to have very deep pockets, right. because in these counter-cyclical times, banks are not necessarily willing participants. So often you either have to have very, very good banking relationships, or you have to be able to buy with your own resources on all cash basis and then hope to finance at a later time. So uh, um, I think the vast part of the development crowd sort of follows the money. Uh, And then there's a group that's uh, exceptional who are more counter-cyclical.
1: Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the innovation that is the cooperative. How did you come to recognize this legal structure as superior to others? And, and tell us a little bit about that development.
2: So you mentioned that I invented the co-op, which isn't true. Okay. <laughs> the co-op existed long before I got involved in the market. Is it better to say you popularized the co-op? I, I did. Uh, what What... Co-ops uh, prior to when I got involved which was in the late 70s were really familiar at, at, at two ends of the spectrum either Park Avenue very expensive apartments were mm-hmm. were many of those were co-op buildings or interestingly there were some low income or limited profit uh, uh, co-ops that were created for uh, um, people who could only afford, um, minimum, uh, really, really affordable housing, mm-hmm. uh, done in co-op form. Those were done. Some some unions created those ha- that housing. Some some were government, uh, and some were other not-for-profit groups. But in between, sort of middle-class housing, uh, it was not yet popular, and I recognized that both uh, um, uh, buildings in the boroughs for instance, a large complex that I undertook in Brooklyn and elsewhere, uh, would be suitable for home ownership. And I also recognized that there were secondary buildings, some non-elevated, in very good locations in Manhattan, for instance, in Greenwich Village, Mm -hmm. that would be uh, very desirable and people would be interested in owning. So it was really seeing a broader market for co-ops as opposed to actually... uh, inventing the, the first one.
1: Your dad was a literary agent and worked with quite a few very famous authors. How did you find uh, that business? What was that like?
2: Well, it was it was very much in my family and in my blood, so I grew up among publishers and writers. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and some pretty famous writers. And uh, some
2: pretty famous writers.
1: Stephen King, James Patterson, Dan Brown—these are household names, aren't they?
2: Yeah, some of the some of those came well after my father died, uh, more during my tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they were they were they were very much part of my uh, growing up and 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 my consciousness.
1: How long did you actually work as an as an agent?
2: Well, in I I worked actively for about a decade, mm-hmm. um, and uh, um, sort of fifty-fifty with my real estate activities, and then I then I cut back the agency work. It's probably I still own the agency today. It's mm-hmm. probably five percent or less of my time.
1: So back then, it seemed that authors did not really get a great deal out of out of the publishers. Um, Was the business really all that lopsided back then? What was it like?
2: Well, I think uh, um, publishing was evolving. Uh, um, Distribution of paperbacks Mm -hmm. uh, was getting wider. Uh, Book club distribution was strengthening. So the revenues that a very successful author could command were growing. And you saw a leapfrogging of the value of brand name authors uh, during that period.
1: So so let me give you an example of something from your book that I, I found astonishing. Uh, your office represented Stephen King, and his prior deals when you first brought him on limited his annual royalties to $10,000 a year. So even if he owned, earned much more than that, it would get spread out over time. That seems like a terrible deal.
2: Well, I have to correct a couple of things. Okay, we only work with Stephen for a moment in time mm-hmm. uh, because uh, uh, certain issues that that uh, came up in his mind regarding conflicts that he felt we had with other clients. But before we represented him, he was working directly with Doubleday, mm-hmm. and in the uh, um, in the 70s, theoretically, in a way to help authors because we didn't have a income averaging. So if you earned a lot of money one year, you'd pay a very high rate of income tax. Right. And if you owed, uh, earned less the f- next year, um, you couldn't balance the two years. I think later on in tax legislation, you, you could do that. But anyway, at that time, so publishers and authors created this sort of maximum earning concept that they put in contracts purportedly to help the authors. But um, what happened in Stephen King's case was that his earnings were so enormous mm-hmm. that uh, what seemed like a reasonable annual amount uh, initially became a 100-year payout uh, for, for what, uh, what, what, what the earnings were as a result of the success of his books.
1: And you did a couple of other very big books. I remember Bronx Zoo about the New York Yankees, and the G-Spot book just went Berserk, that became a global bestseller. T- tell us about that.
2: Well, uh, I represented a, a, a psychologist, a popular psychologist from California, a man named George Bach. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, he often stayed with me in New York when he was here. And he had just come back from a sexology conference where the author of uh, the G-spot, uh, Beverly Whipple, uh, had made a presentation about her research and theories. And he said to me, look, Francis, you should get a hold of her, and uh, um, she should write a book. So I said, uh, okay. I'd never heard of, of the G-spot. Uh, I decided that I felt it was more appropriate to have a woman and woman agent in my office pursue it with her, which she did. And, and we signed her up, and uh, the rest is history.
1: And that sold just huge amounts in all around the world?
2: All around the world,
1: I have to go back to the 1970s, really where you cut your teeth in real estate. What was it like trying to develop real estate when interest rates were double-digit and there seemed to be a lot of impediments to getting anything done in New York City?
2: Well, in the early 80s, I was undertaking my first uh, renovation. Uh, It was a building in Brooklyn Heights, actually, and uh, I watched the prime rate soar all the way. I, th- I can't remember it hit 18 or 19%, mm-hmm. but it was astronomic. And actually, it was an inverted yield curve, so the long rates were lower. You could borrow five-year uh, money at about 14.75% mortgage money. Um, and what we did in those days, the bank had a way that you could buy the rate down. You paid them a certain amount up front, so the uh, homeowner would get a mortgage at 12 and three quarters percent, which in that crazy environment seemed like a good rate. Right. And so that was how we went about selling uh, some of our units. The rest we ended up renting and selling a few years later when the market stabilized. So
1: the regulatory environment, the sort of NIMBY thing that we still see today, the not in my backyard, Issue Was that a big problem in the 70s and 80s, or were people sort of open-minded about development is good, it's an economic increase, and it creates more housing?
2: Well, I think the uh, people are are flexible, but there is a NIMBY kind of mentality, particularly depending on the type of housing that's being created. We undertook to build a major project in, in Brooklyn, in downtown Brooklyn, and when I proudly told the uh, borough president that we were including a major component of affordable housing, he said, "No way, not in that neighborhood." Really, and I couldn't believe my ears that uh, um, that this uh, that this <laughs> politician <laughs> politician uh, was was not uh, favoring uh, affordable housing. Um, he eventually overcame that uh, because I explained that it was. Being co-sponsored by the uh, uh, um, Actors Fund, uh, and that some of the people, some of the people there would be formerly homeless people, mm-hmm. but some of the other people were going to be retired actors who were uh, needed needed housing, and that somehow made it more politically acceptable.
1: Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. So in New York, we've seen a huge number of these very tall. Buildings going up. What do you think about the state of, of real estate, commercial real estate development today?
2: Well, I think uh, in 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 terms of for sale for sale housing, the market is bifurcated. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's housing that uh, is uh, at a low price point, which for New York City means below three million, right? There's still a, a reasonably active market. The Super luxury market has cooled off dramatically, and I would say that this is a, not a time that I would wanna be building super luxury housing, and I think some of the projects that are sort of caught in the middle right now that are being built are gonna have trouble selling their, selling their units.
1: So that space very much boomed for a while during the post-credit crisis recovery. It seemed it was scraping along and then it just exploded. Did we overbill? Did it, the prices just get too silly? What, what seems to be the issue there? And those tend to be cash purchases, not mortgage properties. Well, I think— uh, I,
2: Especially I, in the higher end. Is that fair? No, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I really? think it's mixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe half cash okay. and half financing. Uh, you know, I think it was a confluence of events, which are often what occurs— and those events are a combination of increased supply, mm-hmm. uh, a misperception of the depth of demand. So, you know, people see a few apartments or, you know, 100 apartments being sold at a certain price point, And developers extrapolate that into being a market for 1,000 or 2,000. So often, uh, under the market system, we really don't know when we've oversupplied the market till s- til things stop selling. That's how you know. Uh, And uh, the other uh, factor which I think is coming into play now is that as a result of the tax legislation that was recently passed, uh, New York and some other uh, states that may be high-service states but have to have high taxes to support them are in disfavor, uh, and I'm sure that's in the minds of, of some wealthy people who are thinking of locating here.
1: We're talking about SALT, state and local tax deductions, Correct. which got capped um, at a pretty low level, which is hurting New York, California, I would guess Chicago and Boston. Uh,
2: I think those are all on the list, right. and there are others.
1: Right. Um, I also recall reading, you you had referenced LLCs more easily by condos um, versus co-ops in order to, um, in many ways, provide some degree of privacy for whoever the owner is. Um, Are are we still seeing a lot of LLC purchases of of along those ways for for those purposes? Or has, there was a giant New York Times article a couple of years ago about this, or has that trend kind of uh, eased off?
2: Well, I think LLCs uh, exist for two reasons. In some cases it may be anonymity, Mm -hmm. but in other cases it's a simple legal protection against personal liability. Makes sense. Uh, and uh, many lawyers would advise their clients, regardless of, of whether they're uh, concerned about their identity or not, to purchase through what's called a single-purpose LLC. Mm-hmm. Um, so liability uh, to protect the household
1: or liability to protect the owner in case there's an to, issue to with to the To protect household. the
2: owner. I mean, normally you have insurance, et cetera, but, you know, God forbid some very, very unexpected event occurs um, uh, if it's owned by an LLC, uh, you would be protected, whereas if you owned it in your own name, you would be totally reliant on your insurance, which may be fully adequate, but um, a very cautious lawyer would would recommend an LLC. Time equities. Um, I know
1: you focus a lot in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Are you outside of the New York area? Where else do you, do you look to uh, do some construction and renovation?
2: Well, actually, Time Equities is a very national and international company. Mm-hmm. We own property in 30 states. Uh, we own property in six countries, uh, U.S., Canada, Germany, Holland, Italy, and uh, one property in the Caribbean. And let's
1: talk a little bit about the real estate cycle. Where are we here? Is this late cycle, early cycle? It seems like there hasn't been a lot of supply coming to the market. It doesn't seem like a lot of existing homes have come up. How how are you looking at where we are in that in in that season?
2: Well, I think real estate is always in in two cycles. Uh, one is its own cycle, supply and demand, mm-hmm. in a particular submarket, and the other is uh, what's the financing market look like, and what what is the ability of purchasers or renters uh, to consume additional real estate. Uh, I think the economy generally, bankers say, we're in the 10th, now 11th inning of a nine-inning game. Right. Uh, and so we all sort of know that intuitively, um, and that's, of course, a concern. Um, uh, different submarkets uh, have different characteristics. Uh, we tend to be uh, um, opportunistic, and we look for properties that are underperforming in a given market uh, and real estate tends to exist over long periods of time. So we don't think in 12-, 24-month segments. We think in 5- and 10-year segments. Mm -hmm. So we could be in and out of the cycle within that period of time.
1: So the credit cycle you referenced, I've heard lots and lots of people complain that they had to jump through all sorts of hoops to get a mortgage. If we're in the 11th inning, we still seem to have fairly tight credit Unless that's changed, how, how do you see us um, in terms of availability of credit, not necessarily price of credit, which is still pretty reasonable?
2: I think uh, I think the again the, the the credit markets are bifurcated, and when people refer to the problems of getting mortgages, they're usually talking about uh, markets uh, uh, the, the market for home home mortgages, mm-hmm. and there the regulators, the government, reacting to the last crisis which seemed to uh, enfranchise too many borrowers, became very, very restrictive. I remember, as perhaps you did, that I think it was Bernanke who couldn't get a mortgage himself. Right. Um, uh, in any case, uh, um, in the commercial, the financing of, of income properties, whatever their type, residential, office, industrial, the markets are pretty liquid uh, and... Uh, um, Although the market has restra- restri- has maintained a decent discipline, there is more flexibility now in things like uh, um, repayment terms. So we're seeing a lot of interest-only loans rather than a- self-amortizing or 10-year amortizing loans.
1: These are on the commercial development on, side?
2: On the commercial side income property side, yes.
1: We have been speaking with Francis Greenberger. He is the founder of Time Equities, real estate development company, both nationally and around the world. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things real estate. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net Check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Francis, thank you so much for doing this. I am a real estate junkie. I grew up in a household with a mom who was a real estate agent. It was always dinner table conversation. And I, as a person in finance, always paid close attention to what was going on in real estate. If you were looking in the right place, as much as so many people said the financial crisis came out of nowhere... If you were looking at the right part of the real estate market, there were tons and tons of warning that uh, a freight train was coming down at th- the tracks at everybody. I just think most people weren't looking
2: in those spaces. We're talking 2008? Sure. Uh, I think it took uh, certainly took me by surprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it wasn't a, like most people who work in an industry, you may know a lot about your industry, but you don't necessarily know- Global finance, as well as you might. I mean, we all take it into consideration, and the system was uh, uh, was was really a, a banking and finance problem as mm-hmm. opposed to a real estate problem, for
1: for to say the least. Um, the other thing that took me by surprise: we have a president today who comes out of the real estate development sector. I was surprised. That the 20, 2017 tax code basically punished places like New York City and New York State by capping the state and local um, taxes. That that was kind of shocking to me. I figured if anyone wouldn't want to do that, it would be President Trump, but he signed off on that.
2: Well, I can tell you a funny story, Barry. Uh, Ronald Reagan made the same proposal in nineteen eighty two, and a number of the major New York real estate families led by Larry Tisch called an emergency meeting. They wanted to raise $2 million or $5 million overnight in order to fight the legislation that was being proposed, same salt kind of mm-hmm. uh, provisions. And uh, I went to that meeting, and uh, um, Trump was there, and I think I was—people were kind of hemming and hawing, and I said, come on, a sidewalk costs us $100,000, Our our whole— portfolios are at risk here and I immediately agreed to m- make a substantial contribution and Trump was number two mm-hmm. and then the others fell in line. So we obviously had a very different point of view at that time but if he has a good memory he certainly knows that this is a pivotal issue that has existed over a long period of time. So yes I was very surprised to see him not appreciate the, the importance of what was involved.
1: It it almost seems like it's um, a red state payback to the blue states for uh, not voting for them. I, I don't know the thinking behind it. It certainly doesn't raise a whole lot of money for the federal government. It's relatively modest in the scheme of things. I guess the high-tax, high-service states somehow offend the low-tax, low-service states. I, it's my best guess for that.
2: Well, I think... I think, uh, I mean, I have no particular knowledge. I think Trump has left the real estate world mm-hmm. and uh, obviously become uh, um, totally devoted to his political uh, activities and uh, um, seems to have transferred all of his allegiances to the right-wing base, mm-hmm. which he credits with his election.
1: I, I think he's probably right about that. So, so you mentioned that Time Equities has not only gone to expanded to thirty states, but is now international. When did that um, begin? What was that process like?
2: I think the f- even though America may think of Canada as 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 an extension of the U.S., they don't. <laughs> I can assure you of that. Uh, and that was my first international uh, investment, which I think was in nineteen ninety seven. You mentioned
1: uh, Toronto. Is that where it was?
2: Uh, no, it was actually in uh, um, in Mo- Montreal. Mm-hmm. Uh, a I lovely had, city. <clears throat> lovely city. I'd been dealing with a broker who was based in Montreal on a U.S. transaction, which we completed. And he said, "Hey, you should come up here. There, there's some great buys, uh, and it's very inexpensive." Uh, and I went up there, and I had uh, he'd arranged a lunch with a bunch of uh, developers, bankers, and and it would seem very pleasant until we got to dessert, and then war broke out over the uh, um, uh, um, French English separatism uh-huh. uh, and, in Montreal. In uh, sure. Montreal, uh, so then I realized what the problem was. Uh, and at that particular point in time, that would have been ninety six or ninety seven. Pricing did not really reflect uh, um, the problems that were going on, but by ninety seven ninety eight they did. And that's when I made my first purchase.
1: So, in other words, that um, dual language mandate helped to drive real estate prices lower.
2: Well, it was a it was a it was a confluence of events. There was an extended recession, mm-hmm. um, but certainly uh, the fact that the Anglophiles, uh, led by the Seagram family, right. had made a decision to pull out of of Montreal was not a positive. And in fact, the first property I bought was from Seagram, from a Seagram's owned entity. Uh, um, and, and what do you
1: what do you think of Montreal today?
2: You know, I think it's a fantastic city. Uh, I often say it's France and North America. Right. Um, and uh, it's booming. It's got a great tech center, uh, um, sector. Uh, I think it's a wonderful place. And some folks have said that... Um Canada
1: had come through the financial crisis without any of their banks uh, blowing up. They have far fewer banks, a lot of concentration in the four or five largest banks, but a whole lot more regulation and a whole lot more oversight. Uh, The good news is their banks are all in pretty good shape. The bad news is a lot of people point at Canadian real estate as one of the bigger bubbles in the world. What, What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, it's true that cap rates in Canada have compressed a great deal, and I haven't been able to buy any new income property there for five or more years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I certainly agree that the market has is very expensive. Um, uh, does that mean it's a bubble? Maybe. I think uh, um, the bubble that's referred to is sometimes a construction boom in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Toronto has traditionally absorbed fifteen to 20,000 new units a year, which is extraordinary, and they've been doing it for almost 20 years. Um, so they have
1: that much immigration to
2: the city? They have mu- that much immigration, both international as well as domestic. Um, and people wonder, how long can this continue without uh, uh, some sort of a, a, a breather?
1: Since I started going to Vancouver for a conference about a decade ago, I just think that's a fantastic city. It's beautiful. The weather is nice. The people are nice. The architecture is great. It's right on the bay. Some people have described that as a China-induced bubble. A lot of folks out of China can get money out of the country to buy real estate, and they the locals complain about these see-through towers. These brand-new buildings go up. They're fully sold. Nobody's living in them. What What do you see is happening in, in Vancouver? Well,
2: the history of of the largest development project that I know of in Vancouver was, of course, uh, owned by Li Kai Shing, mm-hmm. who's perhaps the wealthiest uh, person in, in, in Asia. Uh, I think he's Hong Kong-based. Um, he also owns 10% of CIBC, one of Canada's largest banks. Right. So- th- so his presence, uh, um, and he's legendary. He's the Warren Buffett of of, of Asia, uh-huh. um, and certainly has a lot of uh, investors uh, and apartment owners who have followed him, and who have bought the the complexes that he that he's built there. And it's I haven't been there recently, but it, it's enormous. Um, so there is a very close tie to 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 China, uh, to Asia, uh, and of course it's. It's convenient because you can fly fly there easily, being a West Coast city, and I can imagine that today, with with the Chinese uh, um, currency controls, uh, that that will affect the Vancouver market. In fact, I think I've read a little bit that it already has, uh, but clearly the ability of the Chinese to to buy outside their market is is being severely. Uh, reduced and compromised at the moment.
1: So you, you mentioned you have um, investments uh, in real estate outside of North America. Uh, where where are you putting money to work in either Europe or South America or Asia? What what catches your fancy these days? Well,
2: my most recent, uh, I, there were really two places that I would think about. First is Holland. Mm-hmm. Holland was at the end of a long recession about two or three years ago. Uh, banks weren't lending and a lot of the local real estate companies uh, were very compromised by the losses that they took during, during a sustained recession. So real estate was very cheap in Holland and nobody had the ability to, to, to execute on it and buy it. So we have bought uh, about 25 or 30 office buildings there in the last two years. Mm-hmm. So that's been an area of great activity to us and uh, we've set up a small asset management office so we're very, very uh, Netherlands-centric. The um in addition we just uh, uh, began uh, made an investment in Italy mm-hmm. which is working its way out of an enormous pile of sure of uh, debt and and issues uh, in a similar contrarian play where, where in Italy well we bought uh, what we did was we bought a portfolio of non-performing loans that's uh, that it was controlled by a Tuscan bank so most of the loans are in and around Tuscany
1: Okay. There are worse places in the world to uh, spend time. If you're looking at Italy, are you looking at any of the other uh, Southern European countries that uh, seem to fall on hard times uh, over the past couple of years, uh, Greece or Portugal or Spain?
2: Well, we spent time looking at Spain, but we found that the tradition, the customs of the market are, are less transparent there mm-hmm. than we were used to. Uh, and so we... We, we were thinking closely about it and had allied ourselves with some local groups, but nothing came of it. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Greece. Uh, um, uh, we were having a discussion about Greece just the other day, and we'll take a look. Portugal is obviously a country that's very much on the rise and has a lot of very positive uh, um, indicators, uh, and I'd like to investigate it more, although I suspect the real estate there has already reflected the upturn in their economy.
1: Uh, I would imagine that making an investment overseas, whether it's Canada or, or Italy, is much more challenging than being in your own local backyard. How different are the legal rules? How different is the, the business culture? Uh, what do you encounter when you try and bring what you've done in the United States overseas?
2: Well, clearly, Gaining a very, very careful understanding of the legal structure is important. Uh, um, Understanding the tax structure, uh, and that's sort of the first steps that we take when we think about a country. Uh, We look, of course, at sovereign risk, uh, but we look at the legal and tax structure. I remember going to Poland, Mm -hmm. and uh, um, a lawyer there was lecturing me on how Poland had special laws that uh um non-polish citizens couldn't own speculative real estate and then he spent 2 hours explaining how to get around it
0: mm-hmm.
2: and i said well you know i don't really like to get around things if, <laughs> if i'm not welcome here thank you right uh, uh and i can then can continue to concentrate on germany which certainly has lots of rules
1: but it's pretty transparent it's isn't? transparent
2: right uh so you have to you have to understand each each market uh, and uh, um, study it and and understand what you're getting into.
1: Not too long ago, I was sort of shocked at how relatively inexpensive Berlin was compared to the rest of uh, rest of Europe. Where, where are you investing in, in Germany?
2: Well, I started investing in Berlin in about uh, 2003, 2004. Um, wow. And uh, actually ran into a publishing friend when I was at a publishing convention in Frankfurt and he said, uh, you like real estate, go to Berlin, they're giving it away. <laughs> and they were. Uh, so I bought as much as I could find uh, um, that made sense uh, in sort of the 2004 to 2010, 12 period. But now the market, just like Canada, has become a very, very favored investment market. Mm-hmm. Prices have escalated and uh, we're not able to buy uh, uh Properties there at, at at good spreads. We're happy to have the ones that we do, and they're very very much more valuable than they were when we bought them.
1: And and you guys, time equity is not much of a flipper. If you buy a property at a good price and it appreciates, but it's throwing off income, you would. Uh, my understanding is you prefer to hold on to those.
2: We're we're very cash flow oriented, so we we uh, uh, we sort of built our business based on having a, a very strong. Uh, amount of cash flow because when you're in the flipping business or totally in the for sale business, uh, you're a victim of markets. Mm-hmm. And what do you do when the markets go south? If if you're running a an income business a rental business, you know that there's going to be income there through thick and thin. It may vary to one degree or another, mm-hmm. uh, but you're not going to suddenly have the tap go dry.
1: You you speaking of taps? You mentioned uh, the Dutch. I think most of Holland is below sea level, and they have some pretty extensive um, structural engineering to keep water out, uh, even if we see sea level uh, go up. There was a a piece in the New York Times not too long ago about the threats to certain coastal cities in the United States, um, and that the insurance industry has been raising rates If you're anywhere near either a hurricane zone or a a rising waters um, situation, how do you see the potential threat of rising ocean levels um, relative to real estate investing?
2: Well, it's certainly probably the greatest uh, disruption that uh, um, the business faces. Uh, We read every day, whether it's special sections in the New York Times or there was a report out this morning uh, and notwithstanding that uh, politically uh, the administration has decided that the problem doesn't exist or shouldn't be referred to, it's clearly a major problem and it's coming and it's coming quickly. Mm -hmm. At Time Equities we've had a Department of Sustainability probably for 10 years so it's certainly an issue that we pay attention to. it's not a simple one uh, um, and how you manage the risk in, in different situations uh, requires a, a, a complex point of view. Um, uh, it's funny, I spent the summer talking to my wife about our house, our beach house on Long Island Right. and uh, do we sell it and move inland? What do we do? And of course, it's problematic because we enjoy being there <laughs> right. and our family members and friends do. But... Uh, when do you pack your bags and run? Uh, it's complicated.
1: So, if you were that, that raises an interesting question. If you were shopping for a new beach house today, would you buy a place in, let's say, the beachfront in Miami or, or even the Hamptons? Is that something you would be reluctant to put I, a big investment into?
2: I would certainly be reluctant. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, the problem is, of course, the place that I have is attached to a lot of memories. We've right. had it for 20 years, the kids grew up there, and how do you separate from it? But- uh, The problem it, with every real estate transaction
1: <laughs> is, is, is you just described it.
2: it, it, it uh, it's more than bricks and mortar.
1: Right, so I know I only have you for so much time, and I have a bunch of more questions to get to, um, including my favorite uh, questions I ask all our guests. Why don't we jump right into those and and see where they go. Tell us the most important thing that we don't know about you.
2: Well, although I am transparent and uh, candid, uh, I also know how to keep a secret Mm -hmm. and do. so. Tell us one. (laughs) No, thank
1: you. (laughs) Um, Talk to me about your early mentors who helped guide your career, be it in the literary agency space or in commercial real estate?
2: Well, I was blessed with several extraordinary mentors. Uh, and these names won't mean anything to listeners. But uh, uh, in, in, in the publishing business, uh, someone who in the industry is regarded as a giant, uh, it was a German publisher named Rovold. And, uh, and he was uh, almost like a second parent to me. Mm-hmm. Um, in the real estate business, uh, there were two people, uh, Charlie Benenson, who is well known in the industry, uh, and, uh, certainly w- had a major influence on, on me in all respects. Uh, and there was a, uh, another man named Milton Newmark who was a real estate lawyer who also was a great, uh, mentor to me. Mentors are very, very important to me. I feel like I've learned more from them than I have in, uh, in, in academic studying.
1: Ma- makes, uh, makes some sense. Uh, what real estate developers, uh, builders, investors influenced how, how you think about investing in the real estate space?
2: Well, I, I spent uh, I, 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 my entire career, I always make an effort to listen to what other developers are doing, meet with them, uh, read about them, uh, and learn from them. Uh, however, in the end, you have to make your own choices and decisions, and I feel I do. It's informed by understanding the experience of others, but it's not uh, determined by them.
1: Hmm. Fair, fair enough. Uh, let's talk about some books. What, what do you enjoy reading? What are your favorite books, be they real estate, non-real estate, fiction, non-fiction?
2: Well, I'm an avid reader, uh, sometimes... Uh, I'm reading about real estate. Sometimes I'm reading about history, biography. Uh, I think non-real estate uh, recent book that is now shockingly in my mind on the bestseller list, I think it's number one, is Sapiens, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a history of mankind. Uh, It just shows you that there are an extraordinary number of sophisticated readers, a remarkable uh, uh, literary work and and a remarkable history of mankind. Um, uh, but I, uh, in real estate, uh, it's been a few months, uh, I read Sam Zell's new book, mm-hmm. um, uh, and, uh, and thought that there were a number of interesting insights in it. Uh, I also read a book came out a few, maybe, maybe a year ago, uh, about all the development that Zeckendorf did in New York that I thought was extraordinarily good and an interesting history of New York real estate.
1: The, the Sam Zell book is, Am I Being Too Subtle? Is that the one? Exactly. And and what is the uh, Zeckendorf for developing my life? Developing my life exactly. That's
2: it. Exactly. Huh. Terrific book, and it talks not only about uh, Zeckendorf himself, but about the whole era uh, in which he was such a dominant figure.
1: So you bring so much of a publishing background to a to your personal reading. Are you are you ever halfway through a book and you say, oh, "I wish I would have found this book," or the opposite? who the hell published this crap this is this is terrible how how does your background affect what you well, read
2: i mean i i do look i do look at at who publishes books and to some degree it can inform the quality of it mm-hmm. but uh, um, it's certainly not the sole criteria but sort of interesting to me just like if i look at a building i'm interested to know who developed it right huh i should also of course i left it out I also read continuously the books that my literary agency produces. Of course, I read Dan Brown's book the second it arrives, mm-hmm. and uh, and many of uh, many of our other clients.
1: Who who else? Um, let let let's let me give you an opportunity for some um, shameless promotion of your current client roster. Who is uh, do you find especially readable, compelling, fascinating?
2: Well. I... I'd be concerned about <laughs> <plays>. <laughs> I don't want you to offend any uh, of the would other be, ones. I would be, I would be, uh, um, uh, um, here, I'll tell you a cute story. I got a new children's book the other day, mm-hmm. and there is a, uh, uh, there's an agent in our office who is a, uh, uh, in addition to being an agent, she also writes books herself. And I didn't realize that it was so prolific, that she was so prolific, but if I understand what I got, uh the other day it's her 50th book wow so she's both a very very successful literary agent but also writes at midnight i guess and has produced an incredible um uh library of of her own
1: work 50 that that's a lot um although kids books don't have a whole lot of text so maybe it's uh I'm, granted, they were shorter books. <laughs> so let's talk about real estate. What are you excited about these days in in the commercial real estate uh, area?
2: Well, uh, I'm I I'm excited about tilting our portfolio to a Europe centric one. Um, so uh, um, both our presence in Holland and now in Italy, and exploring new places is something that, uh, that interests me a, a great deal. The other thing uh, in, in my career, I spent half, half of it or more renovating half the world. Uh-huh. Uh, but I hadn't done a lot of new development or new construction. Starting around 20 years ago, or 20 or 25 years ago, uh, I got involved in, in new construction. Uh, and I find that very challenging and very interesting uh, so I'm I'm happy to be engaged in doing that, and it's 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 exciting to me.
1: Is it a different experience starting with a clean sheet presentation by an architect as opposed to here's the existing structure, here's what we have to work around? They sound like two very different experiences. They're, they're
2: completely different. In one case, you're correcting the mistakes that somebody made. <laughs> in the other case, you're making your own mistakes. <laughs>
1: So, what do you think is
2: changing the most
1: in commercial real estate? What what is going to be very different twenty years from now than
2: than what developers are experiencing today? Well, I think as 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 we were talking when we came in, the nature of the workplace, as as well as the nature of of where people live, are. Are, have got moved beyond programmatic needs, mm-hmm. moved beyond you know space that you need for your work or for your for your living, and we're we're very much involved in what we call experiential moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how is the space experienced? Uh, what it, what is what is what is the user experience? Uh, what do they want to encounter? And we're seeing dramatic changes uh, in that that people want amenitized spaces where they can work in a different way, as, as you were commenting as we were w- walking in on, about Bloomberg's uh, right. offices.
1: We, you come into this building, all the elevators take you to the sixth floor, which becomes the general lobby, uh, and the thinking behind that is you just end up with these serendipitous interactions with people that you may not otherwise see if everybody just takes an elevator up to their own floor, and the whole idea of having um, a food space and a just It's a different design philosophy, Um, and I like your use of the word experiential. It really is what it is. It's not just physical space. Someone has thought about flow and how people interact in in the real world.
2: And these days, when we're retrofitting suburban office buildings, which we do a lot, or urban ones for that matter, we're now introducing major uh, um, amenity lounge spaces co-working spaces, wellness spaces uh, and and food and beverage spaces. So they' almost become a little hotel like uh, <laughs> beyond uh, um, the typical
1: office situation that, that that's pretty interesting. So this is always a, an interesting question and and I kind of have a sense of where you're gonna go with this from your book. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience.
2: Well, I fail all the time. <laughs> I always say that I, I don't bat bat a thousand. I bat six fifty, but that's pretty good. <laughs> um, so I think uh, I, I think recently, uh, um, I don't know whether uh, whether it was Bezos or somebody said, if you haven't failed continuously, you're not uh, making progress. Right. Um, so. Uh, um, I have many many mistakes or, or many issues that that we deal with, uh, and I think when when a business plan goes wrong, the important thing is to switch strategies quickly, and uh, either find a way to minimize your losses, or if it's a market correction that you're subject to, perhaps putting it uh, extending the the business plan time frame uh, until. Markets recover, which, for instance, if it's a for sale project, going into a rental mode would be a way to do that. Hmm.
1: What do you do for fun outside of the world of real estate?
2: I'm a big traveler. Uh, um, I like new places. Um, going to Copenhagen next week for the first, first time. Um, be careful I, of the bicycles.
1: It's a fascinating city. Well, I
2: spent a lot of time in Amsterdam. There's okay, no I, place that's s- more bicycle dangerous than Amsterdam. Um,
1: I I have not been to Amsterdam, but I've been to Copenhagen. And even as many bikes are now in New York, it, it's just astonishing.
2: You you really have to know the rules of the road mm-hmm. and basically know that there may not be any rules. So just watch out. <laughs> my, my rule is get out of their way. Uh, I love my family like everybody does. I love my friends. I spend a lot of social time. And I'm also a tennis player and a skier. Hmm.
1: Interesting. If you had a millennial or a recent college grad come to you and say they were interested in a career in commercial real estate, what sort of advice would you give them?
2: I would, I would tell them to learn as much as they can, of course. Uh, I would tell them to learn how to differentiate themselves and to see things, to try to see things that others don't. Because that's really, as we discussed earlier, where the margins are. If you Think like everybody else, margins are thin.
1: And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of real estate today that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were really
2: ramping up? Well, I've always had a sort of creative uh, side uh, visual sensitivity uh, but as I've gotten more and more into uh, development I realize that I really do have a very keen architectural sense mm-hmm. and uh, development is teamwork it's a team between an architect uh, and a developer and if you bring that skill uh, that way to see into things and 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 to appreciate good architecture and also redirect architecture when it when it goes awry or it's not serving, your program. That's a very beneficial relationship. Mm-hmm. And I've enjoyed my my uh, working with a number of, of fantastic architects including some of the star architects of the world. So that that element of creativity is something that I discovered a little later in my career and would have perhaps liked to have done done sooner.
1: We have been speaking with Francis Greenberger. He is the founder of Time Equities, uh international real estate development firm. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever finer podcasts are sold, and you can see any of the previous 225 or so such conversations we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the CRACK staff that helps put together these conversations each week. Uh, Medina Parwana is my producer, Taylor Riggs is our booker, Atika Valbrun is our project manager, Michael Batnick is our head of research, I'm Barry Ritholtz, you've been listening to Masters in Business
0: on Bloomberg Radio.